Would you stand this morning as I read the text from Isaiah chapter 9? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppression. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our kids can be dismissed at this time. There's programming down the hall for them. And to the rest of you, thank you for being here at the 9 o'clock service to worship with us. If you are afraid of the dark, uh, then Christmas time should be like a paradise to you. Why? Because at Christmas time, there are lights everywhere. We have them on stage uh, right now, and you're, you're seeing them pop up all over town, right? And even in the corners of your house there that are dark the rest of the year, at Christmas time, there are these twinkling lights, and the darkness is kind of fades away. And so just for a few weeks, you can have uh, freedom from your fear of the dark. And Christmas time is a favorite time of the year for some people simply because of the lights, right? And that's a nice picture of what we have in Isaiah chapter 9. There are people walking in darkness. They are afraid. The text says they are afraid of death. They are literally living in a land of the shadow of death. They are in death darkness, we could say it that way. And a verse that we did not read right before this passage that we did read, it says that these people looked to the earth and all they got in return was darkness and gloom and they were thrust into thick darkness. And then the prophet gives these people hope. The hope that he gives them is that these people who are walking through a land of deep darkness will get a great light. They will see it. It will shine on them. And, and this hope that shows up as a light is actually a child. And this child has a name. And we sang the song, Hope Has a Name. And Isaiah writes that, what, that the light that gets turned on for these people who are in the dark happens when a child is born and a son is given. It's, a, it's kind of a famous passage that some of you might have recognized when we, when we read it. Um, now, we know who the Messiah is, right? It's Jesus. And, and how do we know that? How do we know that Isaiah is talking about Jesus? Well, when Matthew writes his gospel uh, years later, he, he helps us. He actually applies the passage that we just read 
to Jesus as Jesus goes out and he begins his ministry and he begins to preach the good news. And so Matthew says it's Jesus that brings life. Jesus is this Messiah that Isaiah writes about. And so so because Matthew helps us in this, we can go back to Isaiah's words that were written 700 years before Jesus. And we can know he's talking about Jesus. Long before the angel ever comes to Joseph and says, hey, Mary's going to have a child and I want you to name him Jesus. You are to name him, give him the name Jesus. Long before that happened, Isaiah says that this Messiah will come, that will come, will be characterized by some pretty impressive names. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. He will be called Mighty God. He will be called Everlasting Father. He will be called Prince of Peace. And as we lead up to Christmas this year, we're going to spend a little time in Isaiah chapter 9 and kind of dissect all of these monikers that Isaiah gives the Messiah. Hope has a name, even beyond the perfect name of Jesus. And it's in these names, as we explore them a little bit about what they really mean, that the light should come on to us and the darkness should be driven away. That God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us on this earth is a Messiah. There is life in the Messiah. And so this morning, let's look at the first of these names. Uh, wonderful Counselor. Now, I should say at this point that there's a little tug of war between experts when it comes to these titles that are given to the Messiah in Isaiah 9. Because some people look here and they said, oh, well, there are four titles. And we could, we could kind of, in our minds, put a hyphen between all of the words in these four titles. And so, wonderful hyphen counselor, right? Mighty hyphen God, uh, everlasting hyphen father, prince hyphen of hyphen peace, right? That's how it works. Uh, another take, though, says, no, 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 there are actually not four names here, there are five. Uh, this is the way the King James has it. Look, look at it. It says, and his name shall be called Wonderful, comma. Counselor, comma, and then mighty God and everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And so, I, I don't know who's right. Let, let's just play both sides today. Can we do that? And and uh, because we only have four Sundays till Christmas, let's look at Wonderful by itself, and then let's look at Counselor all by itself, like the King James. And then let's smash them together, like the NIV and the ESV do, and let's look at Wonderful Counselor. First, his name is. Wonderful. Part of the reason that some of the versions slam wonderful and counselor together is, is that wonderful is just one of those superlative words that's really easy to skip right over, right? Oh, he's not just a counselor. He's a wonderful counselor, right? He's, he's a terrific counselor. He's a tremendous counselor. He's a super califragilisticexpialidocious kind of counselor, right? But the word is here on purpose. It's not just to pad the word count here. Wonder, wonder means not of this world. And so the title Wonderful is telling us that when people see this Messiah to come that we know is Jesus, right? When they see the kind of person that he is when he walks on the earth and the things that he does, they will express wonder. They will be awed. They will be amazed, left only with wonder. Now, that's happened to you and me, right? 
we've expressed wonder in this life. I want you to think about the last thing that brought wonder to you. Maybe uh, if you're a sports enthusiast, maybe it was uh, the quarterback that you love that threw a pass as he's being pressured and it goes 40 yards straight downfield on a line and it whizzes by the defender's face mask and right into the outstretched arms of a receiver who couldn't even see the ball. That's amazing. He hit him right in the hands. And you think to yourself, did I just see that? Did that just happen? That's wonder. Or maybe, maybe you're not a sports fan. Maybe it's a piece of music or a dramatic performance. And as you're listening to this concert, every note is perfect. Every line strikes deep chords with the audience. And at the end, the audience is kind of so stunned. It's been so perfect that nobody really wants to end the perfectness of the moment. Maybe you've been in a situation like that, and, and the last note plays, and then there's just this extra measure of silence where you can kind of hear a pin drop because nobody wants to end the perfectness of the moment. Then the applause comes. That's, that's wonder. Or maybe the wonder in your life is a place that you went to. Uh, mountains or a field or uh, maybe you were on the beach or the seaside, wherever, and, and paintings just can't capture it, right? Pictures can't do it justice. The, the sun falls on the rocks and the water and the light is dancing across the scene and, and you're just speechless because of the wonder of this world and the beauty of this world. Or maybe, maybe your wonder is that person that came into your life that you never could have imagined how much they would care for you. Uh, you never thought you could love a person so deeply. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a grandchild. And these people come into your life and they give you moments that you could never script, moments that you know that you're not worthy of, and all you're left with is wonder. And in those windows of life, do you know what wonder is? Here's, here's what wonder is. involuntary praise. We're, we're rewinding the play. Did he really just make that throw? We're, we're savoring the last hints of the final note. Did I just have the honor of experiencing musical perfection? Uh, wow, we don't want to leave this place. This is, this is paradise, right? He just took his first step. Wow, wow. What are we doing in all of those situations? involuntary praise that just comes because we know we've been fortunate enough to be a part of something beyond this world. Whenever you really enjoy something, you have to praise it. Whenever you love a book or a piece of music or a person or a place on the face of the earth, you just desperately want to grab somebody else and shake them by the shoulders and say, look at this. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's great. And I need you to see its greatness too. I, I need you to know that I'm not a kook. I need you to say that it's wonderful with me. That's what we do. And that's, that's praise. You're praising that thing, whatever it is, to somebody else. You have to do that. There's, there's this inner compulsion in you uh, to do that. And it's because that we cannot enjoy something fully until we praise it. What we enjoy, we praise, because the praise completes our enjoyment of that thing. And so here, 
the name of the Messiah to come, the hope of the world, Jesus, is just wonderful. He's the one true wonder. He's the ultimate object of beauty for our hearts um, to be in awe of. And all of these things that we've just talked about, uh, that we love and wonder, maybe they're stories or music or places or art or accomplishments, all of those are just arrows pointing to the ultimate beauty. Jesus is the ultimate music. Jesus is the ultimate work of art. Jesus is the ultimate landscape. Jesus is the one true ultimate wonder of our souls. And if that's true, then he's also the wonder above every other wonder and the and praise. Praise should be the outflow of that. Praise has to come. And here's how this works. We remind ourselves every day of his wonder and praise comes out. What do we remind ourselves of about Jesus? That he is the only beloved son of God. He is God himself. Jesus is a divine being with all of the attributes and glory and majesty and power that belong to God himself. But Jesus, at the very same time, is also a real man in human flesh. He becomes one of us. He moves into our neighborhood. He is our real brother. And we remember that, that he is God and he is man at the same time. And, and praise comes out. Wow. That's wonderful. We remind ourselves that Jesus is perfect. Do you realize that in 2,000 years, no one has yet put their finger on even one imperfection to be found in the person of Jesus? He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly loved. He is perfectly sacrificial. He had full equality with God in heaven. And what he did was he traded that for a cow stable as a birthplace. He traded heaven for a carpentry shop, for, for his school. He, he traded heaven for the agony and shame of death on a cross so that he could then have an even greater wealth than heaven itself. What was that wealth? Us. He traded heaven for us, the vile and the worthless and the outcast. And we see that and we stand back and we just say, wow, that's wonderful. We remind ourselves that Jesus is able. He has made a perfect atonement for sin. He paid what we owed. God laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Every sin that we had in our lives has been settled by the death of Jesus on the cross. His work is so complete that the moment, the very moment that I accept his payment that he has made on my behalf, every sin of mine is blotted out from God's account. And now God sees me as perfectly righteous. I was sin itself, but Jesus, the righteous man, became sin for me. And now I'm not sin, but I'm righteous like he was. Then God looks at me and he sees Jesus. That's amazing. So then the worst sinner on the planet now, the liar, the thief, the blasphemer, the murderer, the extortioner, the abuser, the pornographer, it doesn't matter. They can all come to the foot of the cross, even right now, with the worst of their worst sins, and the death of Christ is so perfectly atoning that the moment that they accept what he has done for them, all of those sins are blotted out and they become white as snow. Jesus paid my debt, all the debt I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He paid the check. All the sinner has to do is accept it. And we see that. We understand that. And we say, wow. We 
remind ourselves that there's still more to come. Jesus has made promises about what will happen in the future. When he comes again, he will raise the dead with just his voice. And they will be with him fully alive. And when he comes again, he will transform each one of us into his perfect and everlasting likeness. And so our weak and our sick, ravaged bodies will get this glorious makeover and we'll be freed from every every weakness, every limitation. And, and our bodies will have this beauty that they've never had before. And it's not just our bodies that will change. We will be changed inside as well. Our hearts will be transformed and our inmost character will be made exactly like his and with our new bodies and our new hearts jesus will bring us like a brother into our inheritance from god we will share all that god is and all that god has we will share in his wisdom and his power and his holiness and all the treasures that heaven has to offer and we just think about that happening and we go with this wonderful Jesus. Now, he's not only wonderful, he's also counselor. Counselor. What does that mean? Well, the idea with the word counselor, some of us, uh, means going to an office and laying on a couch and talking about how your life is a mess, right? And uh, the word counselor here in Isaiah chapter 9 is a little different flavor. It means uh, it's more like kings and rulers surrounding themselves with with very wise men and sages that they would then lean on for uh, guidance to make difficult decisions. And so counseling here really amounts to having the wisdom that is necessary to make the right decision. That's what a counselor is, after all. A counselor is a source of wisdom. And so I want you to notice some things about the counselor here. This, This government will be on his shoulders. That's what the text says. Uh, Government, don't let that throw you. It just means rule or dominion. All ruling decisions will be on the shoulders of the Messiah and on his shoulders alone. And so we know Jesus is the Messiah. So Jesus will have sovereignty and ruling power and dominion over every affair on the earth. And he will not need anyone to guide him in any of those decisions. He will not need or require advisors at all. Why? Because he is the divine son who is given. He is the counselor. He is the advice. He is wisdom itself. Proverbs chapter 3 tells us that wisdom itself is divine. And Jesus here is the counselor, the source of wisdom. And so what Jesus will do is he will come down to us and he will apply the wisdom of God to our human situation. A man found himself having to work from home uh, during COVID. And so he set up a makeshift office in his attic. He was upstairs. And most days are fine, but there were some days where he would be working and the kids were also at home as well. They weren't in the attic, of course. They were downstairs, right? And so as he would do his work in the attic, they would occupy themselves downstairs. And as you can imagine, there were interruptions with this setup. The kids wouldn't be getting along. And there was one argument after another. And the man would yell down from the stairs at the kids, share the game. Let your brother play. Take turns. These are revolutionary ideas coming 
down to these kids from on high. And that worked for a while. But eventually, eventually, the word from the heavens above was not enough, right? And so the fights wouldn't stop, the arguing wouldn't stop. And so you know what the man had to do. He had to go down the stairs and make his word into flesh in the living room. He had to be physically present to fix things himself unless there was a unless he was there in bodily form in front of his kids nothing would change one of the great messages of christmas is that god came down the stairs himself to fix our issues we have some wisdom in this world we have some sources right but it's not enough to fix things we have wise guys we have sages we have teachers we have gurus We have books, we have knowledge, but we're still in the dark. We're still confused. And nothing less than God himself coming down the stairs, the very presence of God, the incarnation, the birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus himself, nothing less than that can save us. So he came. And with him, he brought ultimate wisdom that has allowed us to deal with some problems that we did not have a chance to deal with on our own. We, we don't have the wisdom to face death. We just don't. Not with confidence, not with assurance, not with joy. There's no advice on this earth adequate enough to help us face the certainty of death, let alone with confidence or assurance or even joy. We don't have the wisdom to live with our past, do we? Every one of us has something. Likely many somethings in our past. And and we look back at those somethings and we just wince. Why did I do that? Why did I choose that? Why did I say that? Because all of those decisions brought misery and pain and loss. And we know that we cannot change that past. But what we're trying to do is have peace about it. How do you come to the place where despite your most wretched sins, you can accept yourself? We don't have wisdom for that. One more. We don't have wisdom enough in this world to forgive our enemies. We not only have to figure out how to live with ourselves for our own past, but on top of that, now we have to figure out how to love other people and their past. Like, if if I can't manage to settle my own past, then how am I ever going to deal with the sins of other people? How do I do that? And the answer is that Jesus has come down the stairs to help. The story of Jesus allows us to face death, to deal with our conscience, and to forgive other people fully, like 100% forgiveness. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And that allows us to break addictions and put families back together. It's, It's what allows us to heal from the inside out. It's the counselor, the God in the manger, the God with arms stretched out, dying on a cross, sacrificing for you and me, it's Jesus coming down the stairs, appearing in the flesh. That's what gives you the ultimate wisdom that nothing else in your life to this point has ever been able to give you. One more. He's the counselor. So let's blend those two together. He's the wonderful counselor. Or, since we've decided that wonderful amounts to praise... And counselor amounts to wisdom, we could say it this way. He is praiseworthy wisdom. That's what he is. 
And we get some help when we talk about wonderful counselor from the very first line of the verse. We've said it already a few times. A child is born, a son is given. What, what does that line tell us? First, it tells us that this hope, this Messiah, is a child that will be born just like any other child. Born in the same way that everyone in this room was born. What does that mean? It means that this Messiah is fully human. He's just like you, just like me, just like anybody else that's been born on the earth. Second, this line says, the hope to come is also a son that is given. A son who is the very son of God. It means that he is divine. It means that this divine son is given to the world for God so loved the world that he gave. His only son. This hope is God himself wrapped up in humanity. Now I want you to remember that this prophecy is written 700 years before Jesus comes. And when Jesus does come, these things that we're talking about are absolutely witnessed by everybody who knew and saw Jesus. All of his friends, even some of his family will say of him, Jesus Christ is God himself become a man, and he is a man just like us who is God himself. His, he is deity in human flesh. Now, pair the names with those two ideas. Jesus is a son given. He's a wonder. Jesus is God and is the ultimate beauty for our souls, invoking praise with everything he does. And then also, Jesus is a child born. And he is a counselor. Jesus is just like us. Jesus is the God who is wisdom itself, but who has also walked in our shoes. And so he understands us. And all of that to say this. What we have in Jesus is God who knows exactly what we need. And a brother who has experienced everything that we have experienced. And as God, he knows exactly what we need. And as a brother, he knows exactly how to give it to us. And that makes him a wonderful counselor. There's a pastor who had a hospital stay um, for a procedure. And he was attended by a young medical tech who attended his church. And this technician was pretty brusque. And he was pretty ungentle, and he didn't really have a good bedside manner. And, and this pastor was there. He just seemed kind of afraid to say anything about it. And so he just kind of, you know, gritted his teeth and got through it and just rolled on with his life. But then, then a few years later, the pastor found himself back in the same hospital for a very similar procedure. And sure enough, this still pretty young medical tech was assigned to help him. And so this pastor is preparing for some, you know, off-putting, gruff bedside care, but instead, now he experienced something completely different, completely the opposite, 180 degrees different. This tech was actually kind and compassionate, even empathetic as he was at the bedside. And so this time the pastor did say something. He said, wow, you your bedside manner has changed. I mean, I came in a couple of years ago and you helped me. And I have to say that you've since then developed into quite a considerate caregiver. And this, this tech said, well, I, I need you to know something. Since, since you were in here last, I came down with a kidney stone myself. 
And suddenly I found myself on the other side. Suddenly I was the one in the hospital. Suddenly I was the one on the table. And suddenly I was the one who was going through all of these procedures that I put people through every day. And until that time, I had really no idea what my patients were going through. And I came away from that time, and I decided I have to change. I I vowed never to treat my patients like I used to because I just didn't know what they were going through. But now I do because I've been on the table. We do this. We have a counselor who has been on the table for decades. In John chapter 11, Jesus meets with the sisters of Lazarus. Lazarus is dead and buried in a tomb, and Martha comes to him first and says, if you'd only been here, if you'd only been here. And what Jesus gives her is truth. Martha, I want you to know something. I am the resurrection and the life. Believe in me, Martha. This is truth. Then the other sister, Mary, comes to Jesus and says the exact same thing as her sister Martha. If you'd only been here, if you'd only been here. And John writes that Jesus just begins to weep with her. He gave her his tears. He doesn't give her truth. He gives her tears. So one sister, he gives truth. One sister, he gives tears. Why? Because he is the God who knows what we need, who's been on the table, and he knows how to give it to us. In John chapter 8, there's a woman who is caught in sexual sin, and and she gets dragged in front of Jesus, and the religious establishment is going to kill her for her sin by, by stoning her. And Jesus deals with her accusers this way. He says to them, go ahead and throw the stone. But only if you can say that you don't have any sin yourself. They hear that, and they all leave one by one. And now it's just the woman and Jesus, and he says, there's nobody left to condemn you, so I don't either. Go and sin no more. And in that moment is the perfect balance of truth and tears. Jesus doesn't sweep her sin under the rug. He gives her truth. This is sin. Don't do it anymore. But also, he gives her the other side. You won't have to die for your sin. Why? Because I will do that for you. I will take your place so that you can live. The only religion in the world that says that the creator of the universe has been on the table himself is Christianity. The only one. Jesus is the God who has been rejected just like you've been rejected. The God who has been grieved just like you. Jesus is the one who knows loss and rejection and pain and torture and death and misunderstanding just like you and even more than you because he has been on the table himself. And because of that, he is a wonderful friend. So here's kind of land your claim today. What, what do we do? with a wonderful counselor like this. There's the man. There's the man. You follow me. I want you to go back to the beginning of Isaiah chapter 9 where I said the world is in darkness. It's in gloom, right? And to understand why that is, we have to go back to even the real beginning. When God creates the world, there's two people that he puts in everlasting paradise in the Garden of Eden. And what happens to them? A counselor comes to them. And it's by the voice of a counselor 
that the world is ruined. Satan dresses up as a snake and he counsels sinless people with deceit and craftiness and he convinces them that they can be gods themselves. It was the wicked counselor that provoked Adam and Eve to rebel against their maker. And what did they do? They followed him. They followed the voice of that counselor. And the moment they did, the lights went out and the world has been dark ever since. And if the world went dark because of a wicked counselor, isn't it quite perfect that here in Isaiah 9, we get the lights turned back on by a wonderful and they take a turn. Jesus reverses the work of the serpent on the cross. He, he's coming back to reverse the work of the serpent and to restore paradise. The serpent counseled each one of us and put in your heart and my heart a lie. He said, eat from the tree and you can be your own God. You can rule yourself. And now Jesus Christ is coming to counsel you to take the lie out of your heart. Would you kneel at the cross? Would you trust in me and the work that I've done so that the light will shine again? Here's the truth. We are going to follow one counselor or another. Why wouldn't we follow the wonderful counselor? That's the only way the lights get turned back on. And it's not Christmas without lights. God, I thank you that those who follow Jesus will never walk in darkness. That he is the light of life. And if we truly take advice from any voice, would you let it be the praiseworthy voice of a God who knows us fully and knows exactly what we need. Let it be in the name of the wonderful counselor, Jesus, and all that he has done for us. There's a couple of invitations today. Invitation number one is to let this wonder into your life. The way you do that today is to be saved, to, to fall at the tree, fall at the cross that he died on, and to declare that he is Lord over every other Lord in your life, to be baptized, to be saved. And this wonderful counselor, what he will do is he will come into your life and he will light your path for all time. And so what will you do with the wonderful counselor today? What will you do with him? Here's the second invitation. To listen to more, more closely to this counselor. And we do that by way of praise. We praise through his Holy Spirit. We let him remind us of all of the things that he's done on our behalf and all of all of the things that have made us into the people that we are now and the value that we have before God because of what he has done. We praise. And so we're going to respond in a song right now. I'd like you to stand. Be saved today. Praise him today with all that you have.